Renouncing unwholesomeness, we strive to attain. Diligent in study, we develop right view. With great determination, we attain singleness of view. Diligent in practice, we perfect the paramitas. We rectify our lives, it's a Buddha's joy. Renouncing three root poisons, we embrace wisdom's light. Taking refuge with the wise, our compassion is perfected. Encountering specific matters, we understand the principles. Understanding principles, we apply them rightly to matters. We rectify our lives, it's the Dharma's work. Freezing to death, we do not scheme. Starving to death, we do not steal. Maligned in character, we hold our peace. We rectify our lives. This is the Sangha's work. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It's a good chant to reflect on. It reminds us of what our great wish is and what our uh, um, commitment is. And when we find ourselves moving off of, of, off of our commitment, we have something to remind us, to bring us back. You know, it's like we run and run and run, and sometimes we get off the path. He just says, just, you know, get back on the path. That's all. So all you have to do, just get back on the path. You don't have to call anybody and say, hey, guess what? I got off the path, but I'm back on now. Just get back on the path and keep on going. That, that's all that's, that's required. We don't owe anybody an explanation. We don't owe anybody. None of that. Just when we get off and realize it, get back on. So today I wanted to talk about um, happiness and happiness from uh, several different perspectives. The, you know, because there's inner happiness and there's outer happiness. There's emotional happiness. There's mental happiness. There's happiness that's based on external conditions. All kinds of happiness. Happiness is, and when we talk about happiness, it can sound a little flip. You know what I mean? It can sound a little trite. It can sound uh, a little uh, worldly. And so I want to make sure that we touch some of these different bases about what is happiness and what uh, constitutes uh, the kind of happiness that the Buddha was talking about. In uh, and why it's important for us to contemplate happiness and the causes of happiness and, and to effect them, put them into effect uh, in our lives. In that sense, it's good to have a, a speculative temperament where you're hatching up things at night, putting them into effect in the morning. Uh, most of us think of things, but we just don't really put them into effect because it's, it's hard to learn to swim in the middle of the ocean. When something is going on, that's not the learning moment actually. That's the standing moment and having done all to stand, stand. But it's very difficult to learn something in the, in the midst of, of a crisis or, or, or an obstacle. That's the time that others uh, try to bring up whatever's within them to hold or contain, but that's not really the time that we're in a learning mode. We're in a survival mode necessarily at, at that moment. So we have to always know what time it is, 
you know, what time it is for ourselves or what time it is for the person in front of us. And if we don't know what to do, we have to ask somebody, we have to research, or we have to try something, or we have to Google. Or, you know, I mean, I Google a lot of things. Yeah, I, I like Google, actually. Not for just, you know, like out there being a busybody or, or, you know, traipsing off in every direction. But when I want to know something, you know, I, I can Google. I, I'd have to take all these books in the library, and it would take forever to search through how wonderful to be born in the, in the 20th century so that some of these things have been, you know, codified and put together for us. And I can just go to Google, what did the Buddha say about this? And all these things crop up, and I read that one, that's good, but it's not for this situation. I read that one, and that's good, but it's not for for this person. I read that one and that's, ah, that's the one right there. That's the one, you know. And, and uh, so we should, we should do this. And I'm not saying don't read. Uh, please read. But I'm saying, but also we can search out so many things. We don't have to just keep saying, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the Buddha said. Or come and ask me, what did the Buddha say about such and such? We can, we can Google. We can look it up. And and it is there. And then after we look it up and read it, not just to read it, but to ponder it and think about how it applies in my life. I was talking to um, uh, one of my students. Um, uh, we have a Dhammacharya program. And um, she sent a response to uh, the assignment for last month. And I, I was uh, reading it this morning. And it was a really long uh, response. And usually when they come to me and they're too long, I just sit in the back and say, uh, send me back the short version. Because it's not really for me. You know, it's the, the question is posed for them to do an internal inquiry, you know. And it's uh, and sometimes they want to let me know that they know the answer, but that's not it. It is, it is for you to know the answer so that you can use it when you need to use it uh, in your life. And it's for me to know my answer so that I can use it when I need to use it in my life. And so when they're too long, uh, I just send them back and say, give me the short version. And then I know that they really know it, if they can, like, distill it, distill it down. But I, I read this, and... And this, in this answer was almost her whole life story. And their uh, study was on suffering is born from those who are dear. And uh, we've talked about that a lot here. But she went through a whole uh, uh, deep inquiry. But she went through the inquiry from a particular perspective, from the perspective of a situation that happened in her life. And that situation became the basis for evaluating this. And, and so I suggested to her to not let that one situation out of a kabillion, kabillion people's experiences, not let that one be the determining factor of what is true, but it is just one of the possibilities of what could be true, or true because we decide it is true for us, and that the Buddha tries to help us to be more expanded in our capacity to know that I look at something this way because of my experiences and it's true for me, but it's not necessarily true for you. And if we can, or I see it from this side and from this view based on the sum total of who I am because of all the experiences that I've had in life, good and bad, and that you have had a different set and you may see things entirely different. So how can we, how can we get along? If I demand that you live in mine or you demand that I live in yours, there's just no way it's not possible. And so he says that it's futile to expect this. 
It's futile to try to enforce it. It's futile to demand it. It brings unhappiness to ourselves because what we're looking for is just really, literally not possible. And so in the Dhamma, uh, in uh, not the Dhamma part, I want to say that for a little later, but Shantideva, who was a, a monk in the 8th century, and he was... Um, uh, he lived uh, in uh, Nalanda University, and that was a university formed by, you know, we have like, I'm of this school, I'm of that school, I'm of, you know, so I'm, I'm Zen, or I'm Theravada, or I'm Mahayana, I'm Vajrayana, I'm none of those, I'm Yogta, uh, mine only school, I'm, and, we, and we start to lump our, um, put ourselves into groups, uh, holding or clinging to one particular uh, view and in that way, even within uh, Buddhism or within a study of the Dharma, we eliminate all the suttas that were not written by our teachings in this particular lineage. All the rest are like they they're sort of okay, but they're not like these right here. These are the good ones. Those are um, marginal, and so and so we have all of these divisions instead of taking whatever is there and seeing what can we glean from it? What can we use? Uh, um, I'm like, uh, I'm of every tribe, you know, because I don't care which, which group comes in. Yeah, like I'm holding too fast to the, uh, uh, to the wisdom uh, in those teachings, regardless of, of which uh, school uh, they come out, and I learned that in, in in Christianity. I mean, you don't have to keep starting over, you know. And uh, you can learn something from one place. When you go to the next place, you can, like slide in. It's like transferring in school. You know, like if you're in the third grade at ABC school and you go to DEF school, you don't go back to kindergarten. You just slide into whatever level, you know, class you you want. And it can be the same way with us in in spiritual development. We don't have to keep starting. We don't have to keep starting over. So I learned that that in you know in in Christianity there were different focuses. You know, within uh, charismatic there was on the, the the gifts of the spirit, and they were on and it was on on the word. So we were walking, talking Bibles, quote. But when I was Baptist, like we didn't we didn't like learn the the Bible verbatim. Uh, like that, but we were given to hospitality. When I was a Lutheran, we were given to, uh, I, we loved uh, ritual and the ceremony and, and the singing of the liturgy and, uh, you know, so different ones uh, excelled in different, in different areas. But having touched all of them, it provided a fullness of the experience, of the outer experience. Now there's an inner experience, and of course many people didn't have that, they only had the outer. So all they can go by is the outer. But when you have the outer and the inner, you see the finger, and you see where the finger is pointing. So some people only saw the finger, and after a while the finger wasn't good enough, you know? Uh, and they, but they didn't go, weren't able to penetrate where it was pointing. So then, so then we moved to someplace else. But we hold fast to the things that we know, and we keep on on growing from there. And so, um, my my text today comes from um, Vajrayana, comes from Mahayana, and it comes from uh, Theravada. In in Vietnam, there's a school of Buddhism that's called the Four Gratitudes, whatever that is in Vietnamese. It's called the Four Gratitudes, and we, and the only thing that they do is practice gratitude. 
I mean, they're not learning the four this, the six that, the 14, the other, the eight, something. They just practice gratitude. And in, in practicing gratitude, the essence of all the other teachings open up to them and become manifest in their lives. They, um, you know, so they, you know, they're grateful for everything. They're grateful for their ancestors, for their family, for their friends, for their teachers, for the earth, for the sky, for animals, for the food. Uh, you know, no matter what comes, and even when something that is not good comes in their life, they're grateful that it wasn't worse. Uh, and when it's at its worst, they're grateful that they're still alive to live another day. I mean, their whole practice is around, is around gratitude. And they're some of the most lovely people because they've distilled all of that down to gratitude and appreciation for each other. And it is the essence of the teachings because it puts one in a certain mind state that the wisdom that is beyond space and time that's not locked into ordinary experience can be revealed to them, you know? So uh, we think like uh, the, about the pragmatism of Buddhism and how we love that. That's why we come, because we're intelligent people. And so in our intelligentsia, we, you know, we, we like it to be like reasonable, um, you know, uh, pragmatic, and we look for that. But the Buddha himself said, you can't get this by reasoning alone. He says, reasoning is a vehicle by which we can, can, can uh, move towards understanding the truth. But, but in the end, you're even going to have to abandon reasoning because that's not the end of it. Uh, reasoning being what we have figured out. And we haven't figured out that much, actually. And so he says, if you hold to that, you're never going to get to the end of this. You're never going to have that aha moment. That which breaks the yokes of bondage in our lives cannot come by reasoning alone. That doesn't mean we don't reason. We don't use any common sense. We do, you know. But he says we can't even cling or cleave to that because to really inherit the, 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 the essence of the teachings, we have to even abandon um, reasoning. And that is part of what he factors into the conceit I. The conceit I am, the conceit I know, the conceit, the conceit I. And so uh, um, that, uh, if one finds the teachings too much, too much to work with right now, you know, it's fine. We can go to something else that works. He said, the 84,000 Dharma gates, you know, I mean, there's like so many teachings that we can embrace one that, that we can hold right now, one that's easy to be entreated, one that will soothe us, one that will um, encourage us right in the space that we're in, one that will... Um, Give us a, a break both from conditioning and both from striving. Because the kind of striving that he talks about is not born on the backs of our pushing and pushing and trying to ramrod something through. But the kind of striving that he's talking about is born on, upon our enthusiasm uh, for the Dharma, our great uh, uh, real 
our great, I'll say, belief or faith uh, that the Dharma is true and that it will work if I can work it. If I can work it, that it will work work for me. And what give, brings me to that place is what I have worked and what has worked for me in the past. And, and what I have realized that had I worked it, something, it would have worked, but I just didn't feel like working it, or, or I didn't have enough strength or stamina to work it, or I needed more support than I had to work it. But it was in me to work it, and I realized the downfall of that, and I can use that to encourage me the next time I get to that same place. Like I'll remember the last time that, that I was here in this same place, and I didn't do what I know. I didn't push through, and what a mess it was. You know, this time I will put forth a little bit more effort, and maybe it'll be enough to take me over over that hump. And then if I do that and it still doesn't work, then the next time, it wasn't like, oh, that didn't work. It was like, maybe I need to put forth a little bit more. And then ultimately, we will overcome our obstacles. He said, it is impossible, I say to you, not to overcome to the one who perseveres, who endures to the end. And so, so a wise man, a just man, falls seven times and gets up again, you know. Uh, and seven was like the number, like who's counting number. That means, you know, it means like you don't count, it's just, you know, uh, they asked one time, um, I'm getting rusty with my Bible now, but how, how, how often should a man forgive? And it said something like 70 times seven. I mean, most of them couldn't count that far. That meant just continually, you know, all the time forgiving. And forgiving doesn't always mean that we have to stay together. It just means you can't hold a grudge. If you do, you'll burn up, because like I don't feel your grudge. Only you feel it. It's something like that. He's showing them a way out of suffering, the suffering that can come as we uh, endure the vicissitudes of life. And so in her uh, letter to me last night, she was staking a claim for uh, not that suffering is born from those who are dear, but happiness is born from those who are dear. I'm like, you did not even have to write me this. We are already convinced that happiness comes from those who are dear. That's not what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about the happiness. He was talking about the grief, the sorrow, the lamentation, and despair you feel when they are gone. You know, so you're looking in the wrong place about this because you want to tenaciously cling to your view about this over here. I said, okay, you can. You don't even have to write me to tell me that. I have no problems with it. I don't mind and neither did the Buddha. He was just saying, if you want to, to find more resources, more inner resources and reserves, he said, start framing your mind in this way to see these things. And then when that happens, it will be reasonable for you to recognize that there has to be the letting go and it'll cause less pain. But if you want to stake a claim for maintaining the grief because of the deep love, go right ahead. And, and I sent it back to her, so I'm expecting a letter this afternoon. That was just round one. <laughs> okay, so we have to, with all our getting, get understanding. That's what, that's what I'm saying. Um, so also in Vietnam, 
there's this saying, and I was, I was uh, Googling, but I ran out of time because I wanted to, you know, they have this translation uh, software, like you can put in the words and they'll speak it back to you. So I wanted to be able to speak the Vietnamese to you today, but I was started running late and had to go. But so in the non-Vietnamese way that I'm saying it, um, uh, it it is it, it's some you know, I don't know I've listened it's that's a hard language for me, but it's something like three Going, you know, it's it's like that, and I, I and I couldn't get it. But but the three talk means good enough, um, and and uh, and it's saying that if we want to wait until all of our needs and wants are met to be happy, then we may wait forever. We may never be happy. So three talk means good enough, being content with the minimal amount necessary. So uh, seeing a commercial for the shoes that have the red sole, you know, in my other life, I would have some of those in my closet. <laughs> uh, but when I, when I see them, and, uh, and then I remember, okay, my sandals, are not worn out, they are good enough, you know. And, uh, and these days, because I don't buy my own shoes, uh, you all buy them for me. So I'll buy a $6 pair of stick your foot ins, and they're good enough, you know. Um, it's only the eye and tapping into the memory and the conceit eye that brings up these kinds of things for me. Now, I'm not saying that a millionaire has to live like a pauper. It's all relative. If you got a million, spend 900,000 of it. If you got 100, you know, then you might have to count your ducats a little, you know, and, and watch the things a little closely. So that's not knocking uh, people with means. It's a wonderful thing, you know, so, uh, but he says just uh, becoming content with uh, what we have. And for instance, they think it's all right for three or four people to share one's, one desk. There's no need for everybody to have their desk. And two or three uh, kids in the family will share one bedroom, like, but unlike in America, where Everybody, even the baby, the nursery, they have to have their own bedroom. Then they have to buy a contraption so that they can listen in there in case the baby starts crying. You know? uh, and so it's something like that. Uh, so uh, I call it embracing simplicity. That's why we set up uh, our sangha that way, just trying to get back to embracing uh, uh, simplicity, simple living that allows us to be content. Uh, with little to be satisfied with whatever we have and to find happiness from the inside that is not contingent upon what we have um, from the outside. Um, and so as long as we think that, that, that our lives are not good enough, you know, like materially or in terms of friendships or in terms of anything external, you know, we will not have happiness. But when we can say our lives 
are good enough. It's meeting a minimum. Then contentment or happiness immediately appears, and this is the practice of, of contentment that's based on that school of the four gratitudes. Uh, and sometimes the happiness also deals with our, the state of our physical health, you know. So it's um, sometimes when I'm not feeling good, I totally understand why I don't feel good because I don't do the things often that I need to do to feel good. You know, like if your pancreas doesn't work, you need to take insulin, you just shoot yourself and take it. You know, but sometimes I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like it for a day. I don't feel like it for a week. Sometimes I don't feel like it for a month, and I don't. But then when I start feeling so, I feel better, meaning feel worse than taking the needle, I just take the needle. You know, and I, and I, and I get back on it, bring it all back together, and, and then I feel good again, you know. But... Um, so, so I understand, you know, and it's nobody's fault but mine. And so I don't have a lot of grief around it because I know that I'm making my choices, you know, day by day. And living long is not a big criteria for me. You know, living well is, and when I say living well, I don't mean necessarily health-wise. But I do, I, but I mean in terms of the way that I think and the way that I act and the way that I hold circumstances and situations in life, whether I do well with them or not, my mind is constantly on, is constantly on that. And that, for me, constitutes a life well lived, whether I make it to the top or not. So what is your purpose for living? What constitutes a life well lived for you? Um, when you figure that out, then you'll govern yourself uh, accordingly. So when I was in India the last uh, couple of weeks and, you know, we were talking about um, this school because most of the Dalits, uh, and it's 300 million of them in India, but most of them drop out of school around the fifth grade because they really can't stand the public humiliation uh, and they just stop going to school, and that's all that's required is fifth grade. And they drop out because they have to sit on the floor while the other children sit in chairs. You know, they have to eat separate from from uh, the children of all the other other castes. Um, and they and they're denigrated in so many so many ways. And so we, um, the activists, want to build a school for. Uh, for the Dalit children in Tiruvannamali that will uh, accommodate. Um, we have sort of like a consortium of 10 villages, so kids from the 10 villages would, uh, would go. And we were talking and trying to work through, you know, work through all of that. And the first thing is getting them on the same page because they're not. One thinks something should be done this way, another this way. And one thinks that he should be the principal and other thinks he should be the principal. And, you know, so, so we couldn't, like, talk this out long distance. So Gene uh, uh, and I went there to sit down with them, get them in the same room for six or seven or eight days and hammer everything out. And uh, two or three would talk in a huddle and then a couple over here in a huddle and then they come back. But these three have one agenda and these, you know, so they're like picking their allies. And I'm like, you know what, I'm about to go to the airport. 
I'm going to go back, you know, because we're going to sit here. We're not going to have any sidebar conversations. We're going to talk what you told me. I'm telling everybody. And, you know, which was don't trust him because such and such. You know, so I just laid it all out. And we had to start all over again, all over again. But by the time we left, we were in a really, really good space. And since then, I've been getting emails. I'll get an email from this one, and he's adding a little bit of information. I'm like, did you send this to everybody? If you didn't, don't send it to me. I have now sent it to everybody. And, and just to kind of uh, show them a different way that to do things and that we have to all do it together. You know, the good, the bad, the ugly, we have to all do it together. And, uh, and so, uh, but they had a saying, every day there was arguing all day long, but at the end of the day, we all went out to dinner, and we talked and we laughed, and they would say, come what may, Panyawadi. They didn't know a, a lot of, of English, some of them, but all of them knew, come what may. And, um, and so I saw this uh, text from Shanti Deva. It said, if there is a remedy when trouble strikes, what reason is there for despondency? And if there be no help for it, what's the point in being sad? Pandipa, uh speaks this one all the time, but he says something like, if, if there is a solution for the problem, why be, um, why worry? And if there's no solution for the problem, what's the point of worrying? What good does worrying do? Something like that. But the next stanza says, so come what may, I will never harm my own happiness of mind. I know depression never brings me what I want. Rather, my virtue becomes warped and marred by it. Now you see, that took it right where if I was suffering, I could use it. No, because like if I'm suffering, like I'm not thinking about you at the minute. If I'm suffering, I'm thinking about I am suffering. No. And so it brings it right there and puts a salve right there. Say, okay, so you got to pay attention. You know, you're harming your own mind, Panyawadi. You know, um, and the thoughts running through your mind right there, they're not going to bring you what you want. It actually, Panyawadi, your virtue is going to be warped and scarred by it. Is that what you want? And so I have to think in that moment. Like if, even if I don't want any good for you right now, <laughs> I still want good for me. That's the whole point. You know? So even when we're at our lowest, that's where reasoning comes in, if we will use it. And that's why he calls those whose, whose, whose minds become deranged, he calls them fools. Now, when we were reading a, 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 a section in the uh, Dharma contemplation Thursday and someone was speaking, and she said, like, when my husband gets like that, when he acts like a I said, uh, well, I won't, I won't say that. But, and then she found a euphemism for the word fool. But the Buddha says, don't be scared of this stuff. Call it what it is. Because if I don't want to be that, but this is the definition of that, then the only thing I can do is change how I'm, how I'm being. 
You know, don't give myself a word to soften it up because that gives me an excuse for the continuing. It justifies the eye-making, you see. So he's teaching us how to dismantle uh, the eye-making and when to dismantle it. Not when the eye is not being built, but when it is actually constructing itself. Right there is where we have to dismantle. And so I like that, come what may. I'll never harm my own happiness of mind. Depression never brings me what I want. Rather, my virtue becomes warped and marred by it. So happiness, then, is not something that's ready-made. We can't go buy it in the store, take it off the shelf. It comes from our own actions. And those actions are based on our own thoughts. So we have to practice something. You know, it's not like if you take something away, you've got a vacuum there. Um, but we take something away and we put something in its place. You know, sometimes we're trying to take, with all our might, we're trying to take something away, you know. But we don't put anything in its place. But we have to exchange. That's what transformation is about. It's about exchanging this for this. And so he, he tells us to exchange something. Um, um, and, and one could be meditation for thinking. Exchanging, sitting, allowing the powering down of thought, just step by step, abandoning thought. And he said, the one way to do that is instead of so many thoughts running, just focus on one thing. That's why we talk about uh, uh, focus or concentration. We talk about one object. So we use thinking to abandon thinking. It sounds crazy, but it's not. It just reduces it from thinking about 10 things to thinking about one thing. And so we place our attention on one thing. And we have to touch it again and again. I, I forget the name of the insect, but I read this week that that insect or that worm or that larva or whatever it was, but it was something like that, has an uh, attention span of nine, of eight seconds, of nine seconds. And the average American now has an attention span of eight seconds. That's how bad we have gotten because of all of our technology and our digital stuff and our movement and our multitasking and all of that. We have the attention span of eight seconds. Okay, so that has helped you all to help me to cut down the length of my Dharma talks. <laughs> because, because, because for me, I'm from Pentecostal, all night, all right. You know, but, I, but it's, it's helped me to realize that, that the average person does not have that much of a capacity to stay with something that long. Um, so, uh, so that's what, think of meditation as that 
for right now. It's many things, but think of it as that. And as we turn our focus to one thing and just keep touching it and touching it, we're training the mind to stay where we put it, you know, to stay with the thought that we want to have. Not the ones that are coming, 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 but the one that we want to have. And then after a while, we will be able to just rest there. That's what meditation does for us. The other practice is reasoning. Through uh, reasoning, we realize how harmful some actions that we take are. And, and when we have convinced ourselves how negative it is, you know, we can all like it's negative, it's not so good, you know, you, I shouldn't do that, you know. Um, but we have not convinced ourselves that we should not. And once we, once we do, it becomes possible then to reduce that thing that besets us, or that, that emotion that, uh, that besets us so, so easily. It, it becomes less, less in intensity and, uh, you know, less in duration, um, less seeing it less as an option of action to whatever's showing up, you know. And these things take time, but that's how it happens. And then the third is practice, practice. That means that although we can practice patience on the pillow, like understanding the virtue of patience, and we can think about how, you know, when that situation happened, this is how I should have handled it, you know, like I, I could be, and all of that's real good because, you know, uh, but it's not happening now. And it takes a long time for that to catch up to the present moment. So our greatest effort has to be in the present moment when that's arising. Because when that strikes, when that match is lit, what rises simultaneously is the eye making. That's where the I comes up. The I wasn't there in that issue until that thing was said, or that thing was done, or that thing was not said, or that thing was not done. And then suddenly there was an I who recognized that's not what I wanted, wanted to happen, or that's not, there's the I making. Before that I who had that thought did not exist. And suddenly that I comes into being. And right there is the point of our practice. It is the hardest thing to do, even when we know it's the best thing to do, because we're so used to eye-making. We've constantly understood that there is a personal self, and there's the rest of y'all. And that it's my job to look out for me and I look out for you, too, to the extent that I like what you're doing. And so that's how we have always thought. Always. And he says you have to have a major paradigm shift to think in a different way. So those three areas in meditation, in reasoning, and in actual practice at the moment when something's happening. And if you can do that, little by little, you will see your progress. 
and the happiness will begin to grow inside because that happiness is based on inner stability, not what's happening out there, but just how to remain stable in spite of what might be happening out there. He said, a thousand candles can be lighted from a single candle, and yet the life of that candle will not be lessened. So happiness never decreases by sharing it. We are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we think. When the mind is pure, joy follows it naturally, like a shadow that never leaves. And that's in the Dhammapada. So we're always talking about taking responsibility for our actions. But the only way that we can take responsibility for our actions is to take responsibility for what we choose to think. Yeah. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. And may you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.